Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of the Sports Break Podcast. My name is Jackson King. And I'm Kyle Grondon. And in this week's episode, we will be discussing uh, some of the results we saw out of the draft lottery, uh, preview our Stanley Cup finals, as well as look at some of the NBA uh, coaching and hiring news that's happened over the last week. Because, you know, I think some teams are finally starting to dot their cues and sign their eyes or however that saying goes. What is it? Dot their I's and cross their T's? I don't yeah. know. We're just, we had the, we, we all learned in the office today that whole, uh, we got to eat the elephant one bite at a time, which I had never heard of. Well, I had heard of that, one, but you know, yeah, uh, it'll, it's interesting stuff going on in basketball. Obviously the weird thing is, is that typically like it goes from season to off season with like a smooth transition, but because of the way the calendar set up, it's kind of like a, uh, it's kind of like blending in almost all of this is kind of coming together with the way they have it stretched out to where we're not really going to finish the season until July. And then it's picking up the off season right away so that they can start on time for next season. Well, NBA is so unique in, in any way in that perspective, because there's a very short turnaround between the end of the season and the off season. Like the draft happens, I believe it's always the week after the NBA finals. And then the following like Monday or so is the start of the off season. So it's like really you don't get that like February and early March that you have in the NFL or like October, November, you get an MLB like the NBA doesn't kid around. Uh, but then I also think what's funny about that is, you know, last year we had obviously a crazy offseason considering the fact that the season ended in like October. But we're still having a crazy offseason, even though it's better to some degree. I think everyone knew last year would be crazy. I didn't know if everyone knew this year would be offseason would be crazy. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think a lot of the coaching openings is kind of, uh, you know, kind of made it, made it this extended offseason kind of crazy offseason with all of these recent hirings not taking place because of all the teams replacing coaches. And I think that's it for firings, I guess, unless the one would be if the Bucks lose in the conference finals and, decide to move on from Budenholzer, but I feel like at this point he's done enough to make his job safe. It would be a huge surprise. I think they would have to get swept. And um, as we're recording right now, they're probably not getting swept. No, uh, they're killing them right They're now. killing them. But uh, I mean, he's the only, cause obviously I don't think, I think Tyron Lou and uh, it's Monty Williams, right? The Suns coach. Yeah. Have both done, you know, great jobs this off season. And the Nate McMillan, you know, I know that we had to give like a regular season coach of the year. I think we need to give a special award to Nate McMillan for what he's done with the Hawks because he's really transformed that team into a title contender. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that have worked out. Obviously, I think they had the best record in the league the second half of the season. Uh, part of it was McMillan coming back. Part of it was Bogdanovich getting healthy. And part of the reason why I thought the Bucks would win this series is because Bogdanovich's health. Uh, he was limited to, I think, 10 minutes in the first half. So he's still battling through injuries. And I just feel like he's a huge part of their offense, having that second ball handler. Right now he's at 18 minutes for the game, which is well below the rest of the starters in the lineup. And, yeah, I mean, just the, the ripple effect of him not being able to play means that there's a lot of um, – there's a lot of – Solomon Hill has to do a lot for this team. And that sort of situation just isn't going to help this team win. Yeah. Anyone who's played 2K knows when you have to rely on Solomon Hill, you're in trouble. Uh, yeah, exactly. But anyway, uh, as always, this is the Sports Break podcast where it's less of an expert opinion and more just 
casual conversation, you know, even though we do fact check our thing, like we do know that Celtics have had African-American coaches before the new head coach, uh, which by the way, that was the funniest thing to me in the world. Yeah, that was, um, that was an interesting tweet. And then turning around, I, I think, I feel like that he did it the right way though. Anytime something bad happened, just say you're hacked. Cause there's no way to actually prove it. And no one's going to like, no one can, it, the thing is no one can disprove it. It's not even just like, well, you know, someone can prove it's like, no one's going to check you. And it's like, again, it's like, we, we, there are a lot of dumb things. And you mentioned it this week. There were a lot of dumb things that reporters and specifically, I feel like ESPN people said on air, but mm-hmm. like, I feel like he gets the, the covet, not only because the thing he said is so dumb, considering the like history of Celtics, African-American coaches winning titles, but also the fact that it was a tweet. It's like, you can't, it's not like when you're just saying something, you're like thinking it through, typing it out, probably looking at it again to make sure you didn't mistype something like you're processing what you're saying really hard. I made this joke to uh, somebody. I don't remember who it was to, but I feel like it's still true. I feel like Fox Sports has turned into the the Fox News of sports talk, where they just say the most ridiculous things to try and get a click. And then ESPN has turned into the CNN of sports talk, where they're essentially just trying to like outwoke every situation and try to make everything like this big, like fantastic moment and. It's just getting ridiculous listening to these people talk. They don't mm-hmm. think, but you know, that there's no way that ESPN should let these people like just say these things without actually like sifting through the information on live TV. Well, it's like the epitome of that is obviously the 2020 NFL draft when every player who got drafted had a tragic backstory. Oh and yeah. I, th- I think by <laughs> everyone died. I think by day three, everyone was just sick of it. Yeah. Like, uh, but no, I mean, so talk about some of the other things. Like, I don't think what Rachel Nichols said is necessarily, I think she just didn't think through the, what she was trying to say, but I understand like the point she was trying to make. Like, that's something I can excuse for. She's on camera and she said something a little stupid, which is understandable. But to, again, some of the other stuff, it's like fact check exists and not even fact check, just think for five seconds about if a, a guy has been coaching the Celtics, like someone who recently, you know, while you were a player, Jay Williams. Yeah. Oh, well. So let's get to the draft order, an interesting lottery. And, uh, you know, uh, worked out again for Cleveland somehow. Once again, the Cleveland Cavaliers, like this team is just going to be gift wrapped top five picks for the rest of their lives, apparently. So, uh, yeah, they got the number three pick, but obviously the big news was the uh, Cade Cunningham sweet stakes, as it's been called, uh, going to the Detroit Pistons. The Detroit Pistons have some life in their franchise for the first time in uh, quite a while, it feels like. Basically, since the 2004-2005 era, since LeBron killed that franchise in 07, it feels like there's some new life into the Pistons organization. Well, what's funny is, uh, and I'll get to it in a second, because from what I've read about the new general manager of the Pistons. It may not be Cade Cunningham. He seems to be this like contrarian to a high degree. Not necessarily that it's not going to be him, but it's not necessarily a lock compared to like when Zion was drafted. But yeah, I mean, the teams that obviously Houston had a huge benefit because they kept their number two pick. Uh, I do think if they had to fall down to, I think it was 17, they were, they, if they lost their pick, that would have been, critical to this organization that needs to rebuild itself really quickly or else. It's yeah. And that's why I told you it was guaranteed to happen that they're keeping it. Right? True. <laughs> it's just, I, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, because of how that trade went down and basically they decided they wanted picks over Ben Simmons, um, it just seemed like that they had to get this pick. You know, they had to be able to keep this because if they don't keep this, then you're looking at this is now a situation where it's four to five years. I think the Detroit thing's BS. I believe anyone, you know, look, the thing is, is that the contrarian belief from Danny Ainge to say, oh, I'd rather have Jason Tatum than Markel Fultz. Sure, that worked out that he hit the money on that one and it was lucky. He was still probably the the only GM who would have made that trade, trading back to three to get Tatum rather than taking Fultz. I'm just going to believe everyone's taking Cunningham. And I mean, Cunningham feels like more of a lock to me than I've seen since I'm trying to think Anthony Davis. So, I mean, I just I would take him and I think he is going to get taken. I'm not believing anything else until. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say about the Tatum situation is it definitely that situation was unique in that I think looking back and looking back at his tape, I'm not 100% sure why Fultz was getting this like lock number one praise because like he was good. I'm not denying he was good, but there were definitely like holes in his game. And I don't think it's necessarily being a contrarian when you have a camp like apparently Tatum had with the Celtics where you're like, no, this guy's just a much better player. Um or at least has better potential. But yeah, I mean, you know, the Pistons are in a unique position in that they're a team that is still very young, still has a lot of room to grow and build themselves. And especially after Hayes missed all of last or most of last year, I believe, correct? Killian Hayes missed most of last year. Uh, He missed a good amount of it. I think he played a lot of the second half, but I mean, he had some growing pains. He had some stuff that he has to work on, but there was also some flashes of the talent that he has for going in the top 10. And then more importantly, I think that um, a player like uh, Kate Cunningham would work well across from Killian Hayes, probably work well across from uh, Jeremy Grant, if he's the future of that team or any of the other young pieces they have. And then especially, you know, I think we talked about this back when – back in March Madness and talking about the college prospects. But, you know, I think there are a bunch of – there are pretty good players around there, whether you're talking about Cunningham, Evan Mobley, uh, either of the Jalens at this point. But I do think there is a huge drop-off between – some people say the top four. I think the top five. I really like Kuzminga. Um, And so if you're one of those top five teams, I definitely think you're in a great position to get a good player no matter who you're getting. I don't think this is like – something like uh, 2015, for example, where I thought there was a huge drop-off between the top four and then everyone else. Yeah, I mean, I I think you can make the argument that it's five and then kind of drops off, Um, although there are some Keon Johnson fans, there are some Scotty Barnes fans, there are some uh, Davion Mitchell fans, but that top five does seem like high-level prospects. I think Kuminga is interesting. I'm not as high as him right away, um, but I do think he's kind of, to me, he looks like he might be almost on that Paul George, Jalen Brown timeline where if you give him a couple of years, he can be really special, but the offensive game is going to have some growing pains. There's going to be some times where it looks frustrating on that end as, as he's figuring that stuff out because he wasn't very good in the G League offensively. But the athleticism, the defense, that stuff's there, the intensity, it's just developing that game. Weirdly, I thought he'd be – I think he'd actually be a 
nice player for Toronto because they've been so good at maximizing those players the last few years, getting guys like Siakam, like OG Ananobi, who are these really good athletes, really, you know, intense players, but just kind of, you know, developing offensive games. And I thought he kind of fit in that area, but I think Toronto is probably going to look at this as, you know, getting a player that can help us now, unless they really decide to blow it up. So we'll see what happens with that pick. But yeah, I mean, I think he has the potential to be, you know, one of the top three or four players in this draft, maybe even the best if everything works out. But I just think he's got the longest developmental track of the top five guys. I don't disagree. And I think if you're looking for specifically, I think Toronto was another team that did a really good job because they were a team that's in that kind of are, is this going to be an an anomaly year where we're just bad for one year for no reason, or are we going to be this team that doesn't like, is this the end of the, the championship window? Um, I think, you know, speaking of a team that's possibly losing the, the centerpiece of their team in Kyle Lowry, I think you look at those two Jalen's a guard and I know they're kind of varied in how they would play in this Toronto scheme. But I think if you get either of them at four, I think you're really set up for the future. And then I think, you know, Kuzminga would be an interesting piece, but I definitely think that he's a little bit, especially with uh, Siakam there, I think he would be a little bit of a, like a culture clash a little bit, but yeah, I mean, I don't think any team necessarily, the only team that ended up, kind of doing bad and honestly their odds were very small of getting it was Minnesota. Um, yeah. But you look at like Orlando got their two picks and they'll hopefully start slowly rebuilding, even though they didn't get a top uh, five pick, uh, I think, or did they get five? They got a, they got five. Okay. They didn't get a top four pick, but uh, you know, they got five and they'll have, what is it? Eight. Yeah. They'll have five and eight. So yeah. yeah so it'll be interesting. Obviously the big winners are Houston, um, keeping their pick Detroit is the biggest winner getting the first pick and then Orlando getting the two picks, even though, you know, one of them did slip to five, they're still in a position to get one of those five guys, even though Kuminga and Okiki could be interesting because they could be that like, you know, crazy defensive wing combo. Uh, But I think Okiki, as we saw in flashes this year, kind of has that developing offensive game as well. Um, So it'll be interesting to see what they do. I think, yeah, but I mean, right now, the, the obvious ones, the biggest loser is Minnesota because they, they doubled down on this trade to try and get competitive pretty quickly. And, you know, it almost as the situations like they kind of outmaneuvered themselves. They try to put themselves into position to be a playoff team, but then they didn't really understand what their team needed to be a p- playoff team. They go and get a guy in D'Angelo Russell who, I mean, I really like D'Angelo Russell out of the draft. I liked him moments in the NBA. And I think he's a really creative player and scorer, but you also just, you know, you can add up all the negative things that he does on a basketball court that help your t- or prevent your team from winning. So they make this trade. Now they're losing out on this pick. And then now they're in a situation where they don't, don't have an opportunity really to get better, even with talented young guys in towns and Edwards to where now it's basically like the clock is ticking on towns. How do you improve this team around them? And hope to keep them around if you don't have this draft pick. That's the biggest loss for me. And then Chicago, you know, did something similar. The good thing is that their timeline still kind of works because Vucevic is still around for a couple more years. And I think he's still a productive player. Um, But at the same time, you're now stuck with this team that has Levine, who's a non-defender, Kobe White, who's a non-defender, and Nick Vucevic, who's a non-defender. You have all these guys basically, and then Thaddeus Young, who – it's just this ageless wonder at power forward, you know, where 
where does this team get better? Because the obvious situation is that they got to get some stops. They got to find a way to get some stops because they have plenty of scoring. But how do you get stops with this team? And how does this team get better for a franchise that even in its big market has historically never spent money? How do they figure that out? And especially, you know, you're talking about a Chicago team that's in a Western conference that looks like it's going to have its powerhouses, whether it's Brooklyn, Milwaukee, uh, Philadelphia, maybe um, Atlanta, maybe now there's a new superpower that we've, uh, becomes dominant in the East for many years. Uh, you know, you're talking about those those teams, and Chicago is definitely on the outside looking in of how do they build a competitive team. And you know, I think if you're Orlando, you got to look at this as a huge win because you know you kind of had hit your ceiling. You had won a playoff game in each of your last two series, but you hadn't been able to do anything. And so you you realized we need to cut our losses and that netted them a top 10 pick. And you can't really wish for much better, honestly, at this point in the draft. Yeah. So now the question for these teams become what fits, what fits with the team? Cause I, the thing is, is like, I thought Orlando's perfect fit in this draft was Julian green or Cunningham. Cause Cunningham, I think fits any team at this point with this skill set. Julian green for me was the perfect fit for Orlando because this is a team that has basically been in dire need of scoring the last, what, 10 years almost. So I thought that would have been a really good fit for him. But now at the point where they slip to five, they're kind of outside the green price range because I'm assuming that he'll probably go before number five. Um, there's a lot of different places he can go. I think he can go as high as two, but five seems a little low for him. So do they try and package five and eight to move up and get him? Or do they try and get some of these other guys that, um, on the draft order and see if one of those guys work out? That's one of the fits I've been thinking about. And then Houston's the other one I was thinking about with the number two pick. Cause I think we all kind of, I think the consensus was kind of that Evan Mobley is now this number two guy because he's this ultra skilled big man can shoot the rock, can also play inside, has, you know, great feel in the post and also passes the ball really well. Well, how does that work with Christian Wood? Because I think that they're both really talented players and offensively they figure it out. But can you have those two those two skinny guys mounting in your post? Can that be your front line? I'm not sure if that's going to work in the NBA either. So do they try and move one of those guys? Do they try and, you know, do they take a guy like Green and say, let's get some offense or let's get some guard scoring in this team? Um, a lot of different directions they can go in as well. So those are the two most interesting fits that I'm looking at in this early uh, lottery. Well, the interesting thing to me is, and I think, you know, I think Houston's at the spot where they just want the best talented player. And if it's, you know, if it's Mobley, then they figure out what to do with Wood afterwards. But you're at the point when you have the number two overall pick and you're as bad as Houston is, you just find out how to get the best player available. You don't find like you don't care if it's you have LeBron James and you get Kevin Durant. You you find whoever the best player is. And I think the most interesting team is Cleveland because you know, given that uh first of all, we're they're now at the point in the last time they lost LeBron where they're they're still in really figure out mode cuz I think last time they did a good job of after getting Kyrie Irving and getting some of their younger pieces. I think they started to build an identity right before LeBron came over, but now they're in, I think it's, this is going to be year four of post LeBron yeah. and they're in line for one of those guards, assuming that 
Uh, Houston takes Evan Mobley, which I think they will just because he's the best player available. Um, but you have your, your strength on your team is your guards. Your strength on your team is having Colin Sexton and Darius Garland. So are you going to, are, are you saying that Sexton's then gone? Are you then saying that you guys. Well, the rumor is Sexton is gone, that they want him out. So the, the rumor is that they want to trade Sexton and they've been looking at that, which. Which is crazy to me. Cause I think he's so talented. I mean, I think he's talented too, but I just think when you have, when the rep gets out that nobody likes you, it, it becomes hard. Uh, because the rep is that he basically doesn't pass the ball and the teammates are kind of over it. And, you know, when I watch him play, I think he's got all the talent in the world to be this terrific scorer. But at sometimes I'd rather see Garland run the offense because the ball moves better. And I honestly think that if they if they were to move on for Sexton, I think Jalen uh, Suggs is a pretty good fit there because I think he's a secondary ball handler. I think he kind of has that Tyrese Halliburton. Let me just go and do whatever's necessary to help my team. He can play defense. He can rebound. He can block shots. He can run in transition. He can pass the ball really well. So I think he really fits as that second guy next to Garland. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think Sexton has a ton of talent and I think somebody's going to take him this off season. If Cleveland's actually serious about trading him, but yeah, it's a it's a tough situation because he now has the rep that he's a ball hog, and I think rightfully so he's kind of viewed as a ball hog. Um, so the question becomes how do they how do they manage that? Is it actually a situation that isn't salvageable? And again, I think you know, Cleveland is an organization that historically, especially since they're like heyday in the '90s, has kind of been a not necessarily a train wreck, but it's definitely been a lesser organization if you don't consider the fact that they got handed LeBron. And, you know, maybe they would have done something with Kyrie Irving if they had been allowed to work with it. But you're talking about a team that has had high draft picks and, as you mentioned, has had the biggest lottery luck in the last decade, probably than any team of that caliber, but hasn't always been able to execute on it. And, I mean, we'll see. I just, I just think Colin Sexton's way too talented of a player, and and I, I know that there are those concerns, but I just still think it's he's too good to let him walk from a team just as he's about to hit, not necessarily his prime, but like as he's starting to really develop into a great player. I mean, yeah, I, I get it. I mean, I, I really like Sexton too. I liked him out of the draft. I think he was a really talented player. He still is a really talented player, and I think he's a really talented scorer. But I do think at this point there are fair questions about – now, I don't think Cleveland was ready to compete last year or anything like that, but I do think there are fair questions of can this guy be a winning basketball player? And we're starting to see those questions answered with D'Angelo Russell, and that answer is no. And I don't think he's D'Angelo Russell bad, but I also think he has some of those tendencies of, you know what, I'm kind of going to get mine. I'm going to worry about myself and, you know – like I said, the rep is out there now that he's not passing the ball. That has been talked about that teammates, you know, teammates are tired of playing with him. There's opponents that are making fun of him for not passing the ball. And so if that rep's out there, it's kind of hard to get rid of. And it's hard to, uh, you know, motivate your teammates to want to play with you. I don't disagree with that. Uh, okay. Quickly, before we go transition over to the NHL, uh, who is a player maybe outside of the top five who you think is a great fit with one of these teams? Uh, I don't think they're going to keep the pick. Uh, in fact, I, I'm willing to bet that they're not going to. Um, but uh, I'm trying to make sure I have his name right. Franz, Franz Wagner out of Michigan 
kind of fits with Golden State. Uh, he moves the ball really well. He can shoot. He can play off the dribble. He can play. He can defend off of the ball. He can defend off the ball. He he's just a really smart basketball player. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think he does a lot of things really well that I think would work with Golden State's offense. That being said, I I'm leaning towards that they're going to package seven fourteen and Wiseman for something to compete now. But if they decided to take a guy and kind of build towards that future while also competing now, I think I think Wagner is a guy who can be that sort of player. I think he's mature for his age. I think, like I said, he does everything kind of pretty good on a basketball court, and I think he fits with that team in that timeline in that regard. So I think he could be a nice uh, kind of fit starter on that team with his ability to stretch the floor and do different things. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that. And then other guys I would look at are probably like, I don't know. Keon Johnson kind of just feels like this modern Spurs guy. He's just super athletic. He can defend like crazy. I don't know how he fits with Deontay Murray, but I think he can just do a lot of things really well defensively. And with that athleticism that he can add a little bit of fire to that Spurs team. Well, I thought of Keon Johnson as a great fit with New Orleans. I think he would fill a lot of their, that Drew Holiday role that they missed this season. Uh Especially like if he's, a, I mean, I, he should be available at 10, though I know that some people have him really high and he could possibly be that guy who you're, who people reach on like, wait, what? But uh, yeah, Keon Johnson, I think to New Orleans makes a lot of sense. And then dep- again, I think they will trade their pick, but I think uh, Corey Kispert feel, feels like a good uh, Golden State guy too later in the draft. He could be. I mean, I, that's kind of a guy. I, was, I think that they need just guys kind of like that. I'm a little worried about Kispert. I won't lie because that Baylor game, he was just so bad defending guys on the ball. And I think that's something that we've seen kind of in these in this NBA postseason is just how important on-ball defense is. And if he's not able to develop that and get his feet a little quicker, I mean, I don't see his career in the NBA lasting very long. True, but I think if there's a team that he can really – build that from it's being with Draymond Green and being with the the Warriors fair enough yeah I can agree with that so that's our little uh, NBA draft lottery uh, discussion Uh, obviously we'll get a little bit more discussion of that uh, in next week uh, next month's uh, NBA draft Uh, but quickly let's go over to the NBA or to the let's quickly go over to the NHL because uh, as of this recording we have uh, a Stanley Cup Finals. Probably wasn't the Stanley Cup we predicted, but uh, one of them made it. Uh, man, just go ahead. But man, Montreal, stop! Why are you so good? Uh, I mean, they're figuring things out. They're making the plays that they have to, and uh, yeah, I mean, Carey Price is at a nine thirty four save percentage. Uh, Andre Vasilevsky has been nearly just as good, uh, which has also helped, but. You know, currently a 934 save percentage is higher than the highest save percentage in NHL postseason history. So, I mean, it just tells you the level that he's playing at right now. He's been unreal this season. He's been really good for that team. And, I mean, look, I don't think anyone's necessarily wrong in Montreal. Nobody was sleeping on Montreal. This team isn't a team that, you know, looks awesome they were 17th in goals they were 18th in goals against out of 31 teams so they weren't even an above average team for most of the season they were a losing team for a lot of the season too they have 24 wins with a combined uh doing quick math here that looks like 32 losses including overtime losses you know so it's not like anybody was wrong on this team and all of a sudden it's just proving everybody wrong 
they've just gotten insane goaltending in defense and especially the goaltending part. They have a guy who, you know, it doesn't justify the contract because of, you know, all these years that it, you know, kind of buried their cap space, but they buried their cap space for so long investing in Carey Price. And this year he's had a chance to rise to the occasion in the postseason and is proving it. And all of a sudden this team's playing in the Stanley Cup final because of it. Yeah, this is, is this the first Canadian team since the 2010 Vancouver? Uh, Another team that was carried kind of by their uh, goalie. Or not 2010, 2011, I think is when they, they – Luongo played. was good. Um, I mean, that team had – that team was actually – that team was pretty good. They just had no toughness. They had no backbone to them. They had, you know, the Sedins. They had um, a couple guys on that roster that were pretty – really talented. They just had no backbone to them, which really hurt them. And the Bruins just kind of bullied them to a cup. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Yes, it is. I can't think of any other Canadian teams that made the finals. Didn't Ottawa make it one year, actually? Yeah, but I think that was – like a while ago. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll yeah, get but, IT on this real quick while yeah. you uh, so I'll, go I'll ahead just, and talk, do a Canadian spiel. I'll do my Canadian. Or no, spiel. you're a Vegas guy, so take I am this a Vegas from... guy, but I'll say I'll, I'll okay. I'll talk about Vegas. W- what yes. happened? What happened? You you were you faced a very good. Um, why am I blanking now on the team they faced in the second round? Uh Colorado. Colorado. You faced a really good Colorado team in the second round, and everyone thought that once you made one stat is like good, we can do that. We can make it to the Stanley Cup Finals for the first time since our first year and prove that we're good. This felt like last year all over again with the, with the Vegas Golden Knights, which is we're favored in this, or at least like we're expected to do well in this series. And in you know, they had some good games. Game four, I thought was a really interesting game, and what was it? Game. What was the other one that I really liked? The the other one. But it felt like in just every other game they played in, they, they just played down to their competition. And not necessarily that the Canadians are a bad team, but when you're talking about after winning game 4-1, you lose two games by a goal. You then win a game in overtime, which you probably should have lost, honestly. Uh, and then you lose another game by three goals and then lose again in overtime. It's just, what are you doing? You're a team that's so much more talented than half of the teams in the Western Conference. And after you beat Colorado, you go to a Montreal team that you should be beating by three goals a game and you lose. I'm just really frustrated right now. Yeah. And, you know, uh, there's a right to be frustrated as a, um, you know, as a as a Golden Knights fan. Uh, You know, that this is the second year in a row now where they basically – I felt like fell short against the worst team. You know, I didn't think that Dallas was as good as them, and I didn't think Montreal was as good as them. Now they ran into some good goaltending with Carey Price and Anton Kudobin. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, I felt like it was worse teams both times, and I felt like they should have been in the position to play for the cup finals. Um, So it, it certainly has to be frustrating for them that this is now the second year in a row. But I think one of the things we've learned um, between this and you know, the NBA playoffs. And one of the things it feels like we keep forgetting sometimes is that it's really hard to win a championship. It's really hard to go through an entire playoffs and win a championship. And this Vegas team, you know, I think pound for pound has had maybe outside of Tampa Bay, the best roster in the league the last four years. And 
the last two years now, they made the finals their first year. Like you said, the last two years, it's just been little things here and there in the Western Conference finals that have kept them out. Or I guess this was just the semifinals because they realigned everything. It's the um, conference final. Let's just call it the conference final. Yeah. It's what it so, is. Um, um, to answer the question, though, yes. So Vancouver was the last team from Canada to appear in a Stanley Cup final in 2011. Before that, it was three straight seasons of Canadian teams losing in 04. 06 because there's no 05 season with Edmonton and then Ottawa in 2007. And then of course the last Canadian team to win as we're talking about with Montreal was the Montreal Canadians winning their whatever Stanley cup. They probably like to remind everybody that they've won so many Stanley cups. I think it's 27 because I think they have the same number as the Yankees. Yeah. They like to rub it in people's faces and live in the past. So uh, 1990, now they're living in the future. Maybe Yeah, 1993, they, uh, they won their Stanley Cup, and that was the last Canadian team to win the championship. Was that against the Kings? That was against the, yes, Los Angeles Kings. Yeah, that was Gretzky's last finals appearance, which is crazy. So, yeah, I mean, they're in a position now, and, you know, we have the, um, you know, I, I mean, I thought Tampa Bay was the best team this season. I'm really glad the Islanders aren't in it. But, you know, it's also weirdly – the series with the two best goaltenders from this postseason. Vasilevsky has been, I think the best goaltender in the world for the last three or four years. And then Carey Price has been a guy who's been this mainstay uh, franchise cornerstone player for the last decade. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you have these two guys going up against each other that makes anything possible. That being said, uh, Tampa Bay has got to be the heavy favorite. I've never seen, I've never seen a Stanley cup final this lopsided. Well, I mean, I first let's talk about the other semifinal slash Eastern Conference finals um, because maybe it's because I didn't really have a rooting interest, even though I thought Tampa Bay would do really well. But I thought this was a really fun series, even if I do think that Tampa Bay had a few games where it's where it's, it was very similar to Vegas, where it's like, what are you guys doing? You're playing the Islanders. You can play better than this. But, I mean, overall, I felt like the series was very good and it kind of showed the strengths of both teams. And, you know, I think the Islander defense was on point in that series. And, you know, I th- uh, going into tonight, obviously, uh, with the Tampa Bay getting the one nothing win, I think anyone could have won tonight. I don't think there was any team coming in here with over overt momentum. Yeah, I mean, this was a team in the um... – the Islanders that play good organized hockey under Barry Trotz, that's kind of always been his thing. They play physical, uh, borderline dirty, but get away with it kind of hockey. And that's just kind of what they do. And they, you know, they just stay organized and flip the puck out to the middle and they're going to stay organized and take advantage of their chances. Um, that's something they did all year and they continue to do in the postseason. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it was a competitive series because it was, I think five of the seven games were one goal or less. Uh, or one goal finishes, and then there was obviously the Tampa Bay 8 nothing game, but that's the one difference. Um, you know, Outside of that, though, it was a really competitive series overall, and these two teams really battled. Uh, Islanders knew they kind of had to play on that edge and play with that physicality to compete with this team because Tampa Bay has the best roster. They have the cap space ruling that allows them to kind of – that allowed them to kind of finagle with that and have this huge advantage with the cap space – that now they're in the Stanley Cup final. Um, but, yeah, Islanders kind of knew that they had to play this way, and for a lot of the series they did, it just wasn't enough to beat such a talented team. And especially, you know, talking about, as you said, a, a really great goalie performance uh, from the Lightning in these series. 
we, I think we talked a lot about last week about how, or when we talked about the NHL, how flashy uh, the lightning were for lack of a better term and also a pun. But uh, I, I think the, the reason the Tampa Bay won the series had everything to do with the fact that their defense was on point through the second half of the series. They may be playing. This is a team that I think has the best player in hockey. I, I think Kucherov's the best player in hockey. I do. Uh, I think he's better than um, McDavid personally. But, you know, I get the McDavid crowd. Um, he's really fun to watch too. I think they have the best defender in hockey. I think Victor Hedman's the best defender in hockey still consistently night in and night out. And I think they have the best goalie in hockey. This is probably the best roster that, you know, of the last, you know, I think this is the best roster that we've seen in quite a while, honestly. I think it would compare it to a lot of the rosters that have won cups. Those Pittsburgh Penguins teams are obviously very good, but I think this team's on par with, you know, a secondary player in Stamkos behind Kucherov and just the amount of depth that this team has. This team has a lot of players across their roster that would be first-line guys anywhere else that are playing on the third and fourth line for this team, offensively and defensively. They do everything really well. And I think that's the big thing that we've seen with Tampa because this was a team that flipped from basically in 2015, they lost the cup finals to Chicago to they were this team that choked in the postseason, including getting swept by Carolina in the first or not Carolina Columbus in the first round as the one seed against the eight seed. They were swept in the first round. This was a team that was kind of viewed as like this team that choked all the time. This was a team that disappointed. And I think one of the things that they did going into last season and then this season is that they realized they don't have to play necessarily one style. They don't have to be the most talented team and look like the most talented team all the time. This is the team that goes out there and says, Hey, if we need to play good defensive hockey to win a game, we're going to play good defensive hockey. If we need to bring some physicality, we'll bring physicality. If we need to outskate teams, we can outskate teams too. This team can just win in a lot of different ways because it has so many different talented and diverse players on the roster. Uh, but yeah, speak. So yeah, I mean, again, hats off to the Islanders. I think they genuinely made a really good run to the finals. And I, again, I think going into tonight, I wouldn't have been surprised if they won. Uh, but they come up a little short. And I think the thing we talked about when we talked about them last time is the offense just wasn't as sharp as you needed to be in these key, key situations. And yeah, hats off to the, hats off to the Islanders, but now we've got uh, lightning in the Canadians in the finals. And I mean, I, I keep saying this and I've said this a lot about the NBA and we seem every time I seems like it bites me in the butt but I really just think this the series should go easily in, in Tampa's way because I think they're a much more complete team than, um, than Montreal. They have the really good goaltending, which I think was Vegas's issue in the last round is that they weren't as good as they should have been in goaltending. But I know something's going to happen and somehow Montreal is going to win. No, I mean, I feel a lot more convicted about this one than I do about the um, the Hawks because I, I think the Hawks are a legitimately good team. And like I said, the, their record in the second half of the season proved that they're a good team. I think that they are, you know, I think that I'm still picking the Bucks, and I still picked the Bucks last week because of the Bogdanovich injury. But I thought it would, you know, if Bogdanovich was healthy, I think that's a lot closer to the series than people think. I'm pretty convicted that the Tampa Bay Lightning are significantly better and not just significantly better. Like I'm curious about the line on this one because I'm curious if it's like going to be the biggest 
favorite ever because they just have there's nowhere on the roster maybe besides goaltender but even then i think tampa bay has the favorite uh you know the advantage in that one there's nowhere on these rosters that you say montreal is better they're not better coach they're not better on defense they're not better scoring there's nothing about they're not better in the power play they're not better on the penalty kill they're not better in the net there's nothing about this team that you feel like is better than tampa bay and that's just because also um you know that's a, because of Tampa Bay's, you know, greatness, but it's also because, I don't, you know, this was a losing team a lot of the season. This is heavily in Tampa's favor, and I'm going to, you know, say that until I'm blue in the face. I would love to see, just from a history perspective, is this the lowest pointed team? I mean, granted, way less games, uh, but is this the lowest pointed team that's ever made a Stanley Cup? That's interesting. I don't know, actually. I mean, because... and obviously you'd have to calculate points per contest because again they play just way less games than a normal nhl team but i mean the way i'm thinking about this is and i you you mentioned that this may be the most lopsided contest in a while i remember personally and maybe this is just because i was a pittsburgh guy at the time but that penguins shark series feeling very like lopsided um, obviously yeah. six games, but I think there was never really a, a thought in my mind that San Jose would win the series. Yeah. And those Pittsburgh teams are obviously pretty special. So it, it is interesting to go back and forth. I'd have to probably look into it a little bit more to see what were the, um, the biggest upsets, but I mean, this one does feel like it's going to be right up there if Montreal pulls it up because I mean, to me, this just is no contest. I mean, I like, because he could play great games in this series and they still lose the series in five games because that's just how good Tampa Bay is. You know, I think that he can play on his head for five games, but Tampa Bay could still win three of them. So, I mean, we'll see what happens with it, but I, I just don't really see a scenario where they lose. But again, I thought the same thing about Vegas. I thought Vegas had that it's same advantage, maybe even a slightly bigger because of uh, how strong their offense was compared to, I think Tampa's is just very good, but it didn't matter. Like he just played out of his mind and Montreal won the games they needed to win. Again, I'm not saying that I would favor Montreal in the series. I still would pick the, uh, the lightning to probably win, probably win in six games, more five than seven, but definitely six games. But I'm definitely at this point, I'm not going to say that Montreal I would be shocked if they won. They've proven to me constantly in this playoffs that they can pull the upset. And especially after a Vegas series where they felt like they just destroyed every Vegas argument that they were presented. I don't know how you can't say that they have a shot, a legitimate, legitimate shot. Yeah. I mean, I guess we'll see what happens. I think it will be a massive upset. Um, there's only been one instance, I think, if I'm looking at this correctly, I've been looking at this on the fly, so it could be wrong. Um, it seems like there was only one instance where a team under 500 won the Stanley Cup final, and that was the 1937-38 Chicago Blackhawks. And that was probably when there were like 10 teams. And, there was only 48 six, games. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, again, that was before... A lot of things probably we don't even need to explain it, but yeah, that's in the modern era, it's almost unheard of. And obviously part of that has to do with how the bracket was formed and the, the, the Canadians essentially got a easier ride to the conference finals because they 
had to face their Canadian teams. But yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be interesting. Do we know when Game One is projected to start? Um, let me see if they got the schedule up. I'm just looking this all up on the fly. Yeah. Uh, it looks like we got Game One Monday, June twenty eighth. Oh, really? They're going to wait till Mo- I guess they need to wait because Tampa Bay just came off of a Game Seven. Is it in, it's going to start in Tampa, right? Because they have the higher points. Yeah, they're they're hosting. Yeah. They should get all seven home games based on this matchup. I mean, it's. I do think that that could give them a huge advantage, and, and I'm not sure how much it did against Vegas, uh, but the the travel to Montreal could give uh, the Canadians a huge advantage in the series. Yeah, it's not as bad as traveling to West Coast Canada. But I guess it adds a little bit to it, having to go back and forth from there, because um, Montreal is still Eastern time zone, at least. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess we're going to go to our final, like, official uh, thoughts and, like, predictions. I'll go I'll go Canadians win uh, game two and game four, but losing six. Um, I think they take one at home. Uh, I'm going Tampa Bay in five still. I think that they're a better team. Now, the Canadians obviously can surprise. Um, but yeah, I just think that there's too much firepower for Tampa Bay. I think I said this in the last podcast when we talked about Knights against uh, Canadians. But this just feels like a whole different animal if they manage to pull this one off. I think Tampa Bay is really good. And they got the top-end talent that can just overwhelm Montreal. I'm going with the Lightning in five. Again, I'll say the same thing I said last time. I, I mean, I, I was surprised that they were able to do what they did to the Knights, so I'm not shocked if they would do the same thing to uh, the Lightning, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, let's quickly get into uh, coaching news in the NBA before we wrap up. Uh, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about ESPN, but uh, the Celtics have a brand-new coach. Uh, I will not pronounce his name because I do not know how to pronounce it. Um, Ime Udo. Udoka, isn't it? Isn't that sure? It? Sure. Uh, whatever you just said, I'll I'll take it. But it's a uh, former assistant coach of the Nets, uh, now hired as the new Celtics head coach. Of course, after Brad Stevens moved into the executive role and Danny Ainge stepped down, I think he's a good coach. And you know, I think especially coming from the that Nets team, I think he could do a great job of kind of concentrating the Nets team. I mean, the Celtics team going forward. It's going to be interesting to see how much of it, similar to how like those early Spolstra years where it felt kind of like Pat Riley was secretly coaching the team. It's going to be interesting to see how much he has control of the team or if it Stevens tries to, tries to like interject at times. Yeah. Um, I have heard rumors that he kind of wants to have that Riley role where he's just overseeing the roster and has his guy in place. I think the good thing about this hiring is, and, you know, some teams have done this the right way and have consulted people based on who they want as the head coach. Um, you got two young stars on your team. One is debatably a superstar in Jason Tatum. Uh, you got two young stars on your team that you want not only to like being in Boston, but you want to be in Boston for basically the next 10 years. And the one thing I liked about this hiring is they consulted both of those guys on this hiring. They both collaborated on this guy. They said, this is the guy they want. And then Boston went and did it. They went and got this guy and hired the person that their players wanted. 
Uh, Houston Texans, you could take a little bit of notes on this. Um, but, you know, I do think it's interesting to decide, hey, let's, you know, they have to work with him every day. They have to interact with him. They have to learn from him. Who are you going to want as the guy? And then um, they went and did it. So I think it was a good hiring in that regard. I mean, the, the truth is, the fact of the matter is, is, you know, a lot of these, it's kind of the same thing about, say, about NFL coaching hirings. I like some of these guys as assistants. I like some of these guys as coordinators for football. But we actually don't know how they're going to be as head coaches. At the end of the day, a head coach is a whole different ball game. You have to understand, you know, what you want to do as a head coach, managing rotations, using your timeouts effectively, not burning all of your timeouts with eight minutes left in the fourth quarter. Um, Doc Rivers. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there, there's just things about being that you're never really going to know until they actually do it. So I like the hiring in the regard that the Celtics players like the hiring. This is the guy they wanted and we'll see if he'll be a good head coach, but you know, based on everything I've heard around the league, he's a, he's a guy that people really respect and really admire. And, and I mean, looking at his resume, he's got the, you know, he comes from the Popovich tree. Uh, he, he's been an assistant for a bunch of Eastern conference teams, including the 76ers and the nets. Uh, now, whether that it meets, it means something at all is up to question, but I mean, it's clear he's got a, and again, I think as you pointed it out, it's like the NBA coaching, it's such an interesting dynamic because so much of it is player driven that unless you're getting like a great mind, like Popovich or like, um, I don't even know if there's another great mind in the NBA at this point. I put Spolstra in there, but I like Spolstra. I think Spolstra just has that experience because he's again, been a coach for 15 years or however long he's been coaching this heat um but yeah you talk about those guys and outside of them it's really just about coordinating your players and being able to interact with them and as you said if if he's the guy the team wants over someone like uh bill ups or like some of these other candidates for the job then terry stocks then obviously you need to go for him because the celtics are only going to go as good as if jason tatum or jalen brown is there yeah yeah, so, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense to want to cater to what those guys need. You know, you don't have to give them the entire franchise to say, hey, who would you like as a head coach? It's not like you're ceding total power to your players by saying, hey, who would you like to work with every day? You know, I think that'd be something that's really important to talk about with your your two guys who you envision working with for the next 10 years, too. So I think it makes a lot of sense, and I think it's good hiring in that regard. And uh, for their first African-American head coach. Yeah. First African-American head coach. It's again, that, that statement is just so easily fact-checked. Uh, it's just funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, speaking of trying to appease players, uh, we got news today officially that um, the Mavs have a new head coach uh, in Jason Kidd. <clears throat> Obviously Maverick fans will remember him as one of the key cogs of the 2011 championship team. Uh, or as the guy who got into so many fights with Jim Jackson that everyone on that 95 team had to get traded. Uh, like, look, if you don't know, look up the 95 Mavericks. They may be the biggest, like, train wreck in modern NBA history. Yeah, uh, this was interesting. Um, I don't know. Like, I, it pains me to say this because I really like Jason Kidd as the player. But... This was a guy who had two weird exits to the Mavericks as a player. 
had two really weird coaching stints Did as he a head coach. Did have a second coach. weird exit as a uh, Maverick? Uh, I mean, and I especially know about his uh, coaching stints. His... Yeah. I mean, the coaching stints especially is just, you know, that's the biggest thing for me, Re- regardless of, you know, yeah. You there's know, a lot the, of people the, want to bring classic. up his personal. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of people who want to bring up his personal life, which I think some of it's fair. Um, I think that um, there, a lot of people want to bring up his game, which I think is fair because he was a fantastic player and a really smart basketball player. But the coaching stints is the thing that scares me the most because he's had two opportunities now, really good situations too, and it's kind of botched both of them. And I think it's a situation where. I mean, was the Brooklyn situation a great situation? I, I wasn't that the Darren Williams, Kevin Garnett situation. Yeah, but that team was a train wreck. That, that I mean, Darren Williams is, and I think Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce. And granted, I think both of them in their age have started to become misremembering things or just calling out all their old teammates. But uh, they both have said that Darren Williams is one of the lazy stars they've ever heard or seen. And it just, yeah, that team felt like a train wreck. Yeah, sure. But Darren Williams was also really good in Utah. I mean, there was, it felt like there was a way to salvage that situation better than what they did. And even then, regardless, I still don't think it was a very well-coached team anyways. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I just don't know. Maybe, you know, there's sometimes that guys just don't have the chops for it. There's guys that, you know, aren't meant to be head coaches in basketball. He's going to get his third chance. Maybe he learned some things under Vogel. Um, you know, I know Carlisle really vouched for him because I think he works, you know, like kind of like what Carlisle says, he has a lot of Luka Doncic to his game too. Uh, his ability to drive and create jump shots, his ability to rebound, do a lot of things that Luka does, I think makes a lot of sense. And it, they probably see the game from a very similar standpoint. And more So maybe that helps sorry, this more team. Important, oh, sorry, great. Oh, no. I said maybe that helps this team, but at the same time, we need to see him improve as a head coach before I can give this a good grade. But more importantly, to me at least, from what I've heard, and, and going back to what we were talking about with the Celtics, this seems like a move, especially with the GM hiring of – what is his name? The Nike guy. Yeah, the Nike guy. Uh, <laughs> let me look him up. Uh, but, yeah, this seems like a move to appease Luka Doncic. Uh, from everything I've heard, he really likes Jason Kidd. And maybe this is a move to kind of – elevate nico harrison that's the guy yeah he he just sounds like a 2k created character <laughs> yeah honestly but uh yeah no i mean the mat you're talking about a mavericks team that last year felt like luca or bust and, and i know that's a lot of teams that have stars and kind of are weak in supporting cast but it really feels like the team needs to go in a different direction than carlisle uh I'm interested to see how he does on the Pacers because I'm not sure if Carlisle's the right coach necessarily for that Pacers team. Uh, but, you know, I think Kidd, from what I've heard, has had a reputation of having the love and support of his players. I know that Giannis apparently was really heartbroken when Kidd got fired um, back in whenever he was from the Bucks. But hopefully he can institute the same things towards uh, Donkic and the team keeping him there because at the end of the day, if kid can keep him there, that's the only thing that he needs to do. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, look, I think 
the, I don't blame anyone necessarily for the Mavericks failing this past season or not improving because I don't think they actually failed, really. I mean, they, it was a good team, but it wasn't a roster constructed to be a great team. Um, I don't blame Luca for having to do a lot of the stuff he did. I don't blame uh, Donnie Nelson. I don't really blame Carlisle either. I think it was the Mavericks made moves to try to make this roster competitive. And unfortunately, a lot of the moves didn't work other than drafting Luka or trading for Luka Doncic on draft night. You know, the move for Porzingis, I think, made a ton of sense. It just didn't work. The moves that they made, you know, I understood the Josh Richardson trade for Seth Curry. It just didn't work. It was a huge loss for them, too. So I don't blame any of those guys necessarily for the Mavericks inability to improve this past season. But at the same time, it did feel like maybe that if there was a time for a shakeup, this was it. And that's what they decided to go with. And we'll see if it works out for them. Like you said, the, the most important thing for a kid is to keep Doncic happy and keep Doncic in Dallas. And then everything else will fall into place because you have this generational superstar who is the best 22-year-old in the world. Um, I don't care how far Trey Young makes it in the conference finals. He's still the best 22-year-old in the world. Um, and you're just going to build around it. You're going to build around that guy and hope that you find the right pieces. And I mean... I guess the, the more important thing is, and, and again, I think there's a lot of comparison to be said about this, the, the Maverick situation with the Celtic situation. But as we talked about back in, I feel like February or maybe even earlier, we talked about the Celtics as this team that had so many bad things happen to them in a row where trades just not working out in situations where they, you know, pick this player and it didn't work out or they try to get Gordon Hayward sent away and it didn't end up amounting to much. I feel like the Mavericks are in a very similar spot where they're like, they tried a lot of things that didn't work. They tried other things. Those didn't really work. And now they're at the point where they're, they're on that traffic road between being a contender or being a team. Like I'm thinking of like the Rockets from like the mid two thousands that had a very great, a good roster, but never was able to turn it into playoff success. And yeah, Hopefully kid can turn that around because, and the new GM can turn it around because I think the Mavs are definitely heading more to roads, that road of good team with no playoff success. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. Um, I mean, I'm just never going to discount a guy like Don Shish, just like I'm never going to discount a guy like LeBron or a guy like Giannis. I think he's kind of in that echelon of this guy is a franchise mover. This guy's a franchise changer as far as trajectory goes. Now, like I said, though, the pieces kind of have to fit in place. And it's almost, you know, being a GM is almost like solving a puzzle. You know, you're just going to throw different things at it and see what happens. And then eventually it falls into the right situation. I think that Doncic is the kind of guy that, you know, you just keep trying different pieces. And once the pieces start to fit, um, you know, I think that could work out in his favor. I think that this is a, this is an interesting Colin Sexton team to me, but we'll see if that actually happens or if he actually has moved. Um, but, you know, I do think that they're going to try some different things. And if those don't work, the good news, um, Brown's contracts extensions have kicked in. And basically the Mavericks still have six years. They have six years to figure this thing out with Doncic uh, where the Celtics, you know, the timelines, they still got some time unless, you know, they decide to go and just force the trade out, force their way out. But that clock is now ticking for the Celtics where it's just starting to get reset for the Mavericks. True. And, and it, but you could also argue that, and, and I think everyone would say that Don, Doncic is a better player than Tatum right now. 
uh, but the, the Mavericks don't have their Jalen Brown. Yeah, no doubt. No, they definitely need to figure out what they're going to do with that. They got to see if there's any sort of juice left in Porzingis. How is that fixable? I mean, they got some questions to answer this offseason, and they got a lot of questions to answer, but the most important thing is they have this super talented 22-year-old that can take them anywhere. Uh, thoughts on Carlisle to the Pacers? Mr. I wasn't going to take a job this season and then immediately signs with the Pacers. Yeah, just that just kind of seemed like BS. It, it kind of was the Doc River. I think that they... And he was one of those guys. You know, it was basically him, Doc Rivers, Popovich, Spolstra, you know, and probably Nick Nurse is now in that conversation too. And I think Stevens, you know, those guys would just basically get a job anywhere if they decided they wanted to leave their situation. Um, so I think it made a lot of sense. Uh, he's going back to Indiana now, which is interesting. Uh, I do think that that 2005 Indiana Pacers team might have been one of the most impressive co- coaching situations ever. Basically not having Steven Jackson half the year missing a ton of Jermaine O'Neal games, not having our test at all for the season and still winning 44 games. Um, I thought that was a really talented team that could have won the title. He probably was robbed of a championship that year because of all that. Um, so I think it's a really good situation for him. Um, the Pacers are another team that they have some questions to answer. Like, I think they just need to decide, are they keeping Sabonis or are they keeping Miles Turner? I think it's kind of like, I think they might roll it back one more year, but at the same time, I think we're just kind of at that situation where it's like Simmons and Embiid. Hey, we know we know Sabonis and Turner don't really work. Let's just pick one and move on from the other and get the asset. And especially, you know, they're they're a team that you know, especially after the Levert trade, is kind of in that no man's land of competing versus rebuilding. And again, they're another team that's had just a bad couple of years where the Oladipo injury kind of kills them as a team and. They have that whole Nate McMillan situation, which is still developing, and it looks like they may have let a really good coach go, uh, maybe a little early. Um, Yeah, but we'll see. And I just – I think it's an interesting fit that you get a guy like him on a team that is in that transition period because he he may end up in like a few months ending up being on a huge rebuilding team, which I don't know if he's a great fit for uh, as a coach. But we'll see. Yeah. I mean – I, I think he's just a good coach in any situation. He's going to figure it out. I still think the Pacers, you know, the first half of the, the first 30 games of the season, I was really impressed with this Pacers team. They move the ball well. They have a ton of talent on it. Uh, it's just putting all that talent together and figuring out the, kind of the same thing, figuring out the right pieces. Is Karis LeVert a guy that can fit with this roster that loves ball movement? Is Miles Turner a guy who's going to fit with this team long-term, or does that need to move on for somebody else? I think there's a lot of different directions that they can go in. Finally, uh, is the Portland job the only one that's still open, or is there another one I'm missing? I have Portland, Orlando, Orlando, uh, Washington, and New Orleans. Yeah, uh, from from what I've heard, Washington and New Orleans specifically are very far apart from getting a new coach. Uh, we'll see more on Orlando. I honestly have not heard anything yet about the Magic's coaching situation. Uh, but the one thing we have heard also is that the Portland Trailblazers are looking highly into Chauncey Billups. He is the leading candidate right now for that job. Um, 
you know, I think that the reason like point guards are easy to put into that coaching job because they essentially are the coach on the court. Uh, but I've always thought that, you know, Billups, especially from his career as a guy who I thought would make a great coach. And obviously he's been, he's been an assistant somewhere, right? Been an assistant with the Clippers this year. Yeah. And, you know, I think especially if you look at what that, what he's learned under Ty Lue and what he's learned over the course of his career, I think he would be a really good coach for that trailblazers team that, you know, definitely needs someone who I think Damian can rely on because, the last thing you want to be if you're Portland is making your star player mad. Yeah. And, you know, it's another situation where, you know, we heard a lot of rumors about what the status is of uh, Damian Lillard and they've had him very involved with a lot of the conversations for hiring a head coach. So clearly the plan is to keep him around, which makes a ton of sense. And then at that point is it makes a ton of sense to, uh, you know, if you're keeping him around to uh, make sure that he's uh you know, hired. And Happy. I think this makes a lot of sense because he's, uh, you know, it seems like a guy he really respects. It seems like guys who can get along and understand each other as a former point guard who's not in the Hall of Fame yet, but he's going to make it eventually. And Damian Lillard, who probably is also a future Hall of Famer. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it really fits. I think it really fits, and I think it makes a ton of sense. Um, I, I, You know, I wasn't the biggest Terry Stotts fan, um, I know there are some Blazers fans who are really over the Terry Stotts experience. Uh, to me, the bigger problem with the Trailblazers is the roster, though, not the coach. Well, to me, it's – oh, sorry, go ahead. As who actually can and want to play defense because they don't have anybody right now that wants to play defense. So they're going to have to change the roster up, but I think Billups is a step in the right direction. Well, they've also made a lot of like short-term investment moves. Like I think the Covington trade was that. I think the um, Powell Powell trade was that. They've made a lot of those moves. And similar to a lot of these like Mavericks and Celtics, they haven't worked out. But I've also just thought they didn't necessarily make sense from a long-term perspective. And yeah, I just think there are like, we. I think I talked about Utah last week as kind of a team that, roster was overreactionary to what they had a few series ago. I think this Portland team's a Frankenstein roster where like yeah. half of the guys don't half of the guys on the roster don't play well with the other half of the roster. And so yeah. What do you do? Yeah, I mean, I think they're in a tough situation. I think this is actually weirdly kind of a tough job to get into, but at the same time, you know, I think that we've seen in the NBA, it's not really hard Um, cause we've seen teams like Philly who have basically said, okay, we'll just sit on this. We'll, we'll stick with this team and ride it out. And now they're in this situation. It's like, okay, what do we do now? It's pretty easy that if you really want to put the time into it to flip your roster around and make it better. So, you know, I think Portland can fix things in a hurry. I think Boston can fix things in a hurry. And I think Dallas can fix things in a hurry. It's just, who's going to be able to do it and do it the right way is the question. And Portland, I think is in that same conversation. And it's also, speaking of Carlisle and I guess relating it back to Billups and that 4 uh, Pistons team, I think it's really interesting from a coaching perspective because sometimes the guy you wouldn't think would be the like leader of that. Because I think if you think of that 3 Pistons team versus the team that won it in 4 I think going from Carlisle to Larry Brown was huge to that team winning a championship. And obviously you yeah. talk about like getting, I think it's Rasheed Wallace they got in that uh, trade deadline. 
Uh, yeah, he was traded twice yeah. in like three days. Yeah, but I mean, you talk about that Pistons team and as good as Carlisle was at the time, especially after leading the 03 team to the conference finals, I don't think he, that Pistons team would have won if Brown wasn't the leader. And yeah, I mean, it's possible. So, yeah. I mean, but we'll it, never know, obviously, but Brown is obviously a great coach too for a good reason. Yeah. Uh, looking at the other jobs, um, Orlando's the interesting one because I do think they're in that kind of Bruce Brown rebuild mode that where it's definitely going to be a few years before you expect to see anything. Honestly, if he's available, I would hire Bruce Brown. I think he would be a good job. I mean, Brett Brown? Brett Brown, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't hire the 76ers, right? Or is he the Nets? He's on the Nets. Yeah, hire the Nets player to be your coach. No, uh, I think Brett Brown, you know, I think now is the example of a guy who can – slowly transition your team into a championship contender yeah makes sense are you yeah. are you are you hoping for no a, i agree uh, so i think you know the jobs that we've sorry no i was, was gonna that? say are you hoping for a uh stan van gundy reunion no no i think stan van gundy's now done coaching um i think the hirings that we've seen it basically saying besides minnesota which was in the middle of the season we've basically now seen you know, good teams or competitive teams hire new coaches and kind of want to restart their teams. Now we're seeing what the bad teams are going to do. Uh, to me, the most interesting one's New Orleans because with the way Zion was last season, where Zion was debatably one of the 16 best players in basketball last season. Um, you know, if you have a guy like that, you have a guy like Ingram, who I don't really think fits with Zion, but, you know, this is a team that I wouldn't be really surprised if it gets good in a hurry for some of these bad teams because they have such a transcendent talent in Zion who looks like the real deal and looks like he could vault his way into the, uh, I kind of had this theory going now over the last few weeks that there's basically, if you were to rank the best players in basketball, the top 11 are locked in, I call it, you know, the 11. I think the top 11 are locked in basically any order. Um, but those are basically the best 11 players. I do think that there's a chance that Trey Young this with this postseason, and there's a chance now with Zion crack that group and make it a conversation at least. But I think Zion is definitely the guy who I was projecting initially to crack that group soon, just based off what he did last season. He's working harder defensively. Um, and he's obviously just a superstar talent offensively. So you have that kind of player on your team. That should be the most desirable job available. Now that the other jobs are gone, now that the other superstar jobs of the Celtics, the Mavericks, and presumably the Trailblazers are gone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because those are teams that are yeah. playoff teams. But of the non-playoff teams, this seems like the most interesting job to me. Well, what the thing with the, the Pelicans is, and I think, I don't remember if I've ever been pro-Stan Van Gundy on this or not, but I would not be surprised if someone comes in, just an average Joe coach, coaches that team to a better level. Because Stan Van Gundy, to me, is the biggest example of a guy who's either really good with a team and makes them a lot better or really bad with a team and makes them awful. And I think that was maybe the case with the, the Pelicans last year is he just didn't fit the Pelicans. It's possible. I also think some of it is Stan Van Gundy. I, I think coaches have primed similar to players. And he just seems kind of out of touch with basketball. You know, it almost, it almost had a little bit of the, like, Tony LaRusse in Chicago He's a little more recent than Tony LaRusso. 
But at the same time, I just feel like he's kind of out of touch with what the league is right now, what the league needs to do to be successful and how to coach these players. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, so yeah, New Orleans is the biggest in- uh, conversation to me. Do they go for, you know, who do they go for, for that position? How do they fix that roster? And then with these last few jobs remaining, the other question is, you know, are one of these, uh, are, on, are one of these women going to get one of the jobs Are one of these women going to get the opportunity? I don't know if it happens this season, just because of the jobs dwindling and there's still guys like Sam Cassell, Jock Vaughn, um, Charles I wouldn't be Lee. surprised if Becky Harmon got one because she comes from that Popovich pool. And I think the Popovich pool, as we've seen with guys like uh, Udomi and stuff like that, I think would be a desire desirable. So I think, yeah. I do think that a team like Washington maybe, or a team like Orlando is, is Minnesota still available or did they hire the, no, they hired Chris Finch in the middle of the season. Okay. That, I mean, that's not a bad decision. Uh, yeah. I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if she, became that coach for a team like that or maybe that she just stays and becomes the Spurs coach yeah I mean it's possible I think there will finally be someone who breaks the barrier and hires like I said I just don't know if it's this offseason or if it's a future offseason and with the way the hirings are going it seems like it's going to be a future offseason but I do think she is going to get a job sooner rather than later and remember, when they do, oh, Jay Williams is going to tweet the poop out of that. Yeah. <laughs> she's the first African-American coach to be a female. Wait, she's not African-American. Yeah. Who cares? Cong- congrats also to Jason Kidd, first African-American coach in Dallas Mavericks <laughs> history. <laughs> hey, good job to Jason Kidd, first coach of the Mavericks in Mavericks history. Yeah, yeah, and, and Avery Johnson wasn't there, so. Yeah, true. Oh, yeah. First uh, championship point guard coach in Mavericks history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, oh, uh, it's late. Uh, uh, thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Uh, we'll be back next week to probably preview the NBA Finals. We should, I mean, or at least have an idea. We should have an idea of what the NBA Finals is looking like. Uh, as always, this is the Sports Break Podcast. My name is Jackson King. And I'm Kyle Ronan. And thank you all so much for listening. Thanks and gig them. Peace.